0: So welcome to this version of uh, the journey, this version, this this layer. What's version? (laughs) All right, we'll start at 6.45. No, we're starting. Welcome Welcome to this episode (laughs) of the journey. Uh, We have a special guest (laughs) with us, Kevin Vela, and we are recording this one completely remotely through a new podcast tool so we'll see how it goes but uh due to the coronavirus kevin is at his house uh john and i are at our house justin's at his house so uh you'll hear dogs barking in the background and uh, i think everybody who's recording things from home is going to have this uh this going on so um
1: so <laughs>
2: i think this is the normal we had a we
1: yeah. had a bet on we had a bet on whose dog it was going to be first yep, and i said it Kevin's wasn't
0: going to be
2: mine No, that's not mine. Oh, it isn't. John, is it
0: a random dog outside?
2: Oh, Uh, maybe so. Maybe so. It's
0: it's not Graham. That's too little of a bark for Graham. Uh, Okay. So I'll just, Kevin, I'll give a quick, um, I want to give the listeners a quick introduction on how we know each other and why we're having you on the podcast, and then would like you to introduce yourself. Um, Sure. Yep. But uh, Kevin was when we started Defy, we had one lawyer who kind of helped get us up and going. And then probably six months into Defy, we met Kevin and Kevin became the lawyer for the rest of the time that I was at Defy. So met Kevin through that. He helped us through everything through capital raises, through creating contracts, through HR things, just kind of anything and everything regarding legal. And then he's also helping us on Clean Layer as we've been starting it up. So we wanted to have Kevin on to talk about the legal side of things, everything from um, valuations to capital raising to contracts and so forth. And we'll we'll see where the conversation takes us. But for right now, Kevin, you want to kind of introduce yourself and tell um, thousands of listeners what you do?
2: Sure, guys. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me on. As Stephanie mentioned, I'm a corporate attorney. We focus on venture-backed companies, early-stage emerging companies, startups, and small businesses. So we're a purely corporate or transactional shop. We don't do any litigation. Um, I'm also a small business owner, so we can relate with a lot of my clients. We've got uh, three offices now. Dallas, El Paso, and Austin, and we've got you know a handful of employees, a handful of attorneys. We go through all the ups and downs that small businesses go through as well, but on the venture side of things, we're happy to represent a lot of the venture-backed companies in Texas, and Defy was one of our greatest success stories, so we had a lot of fun. Uh, learned a little bit on the fly doing all the Defy work, but I'm happy to be here and see if I can't share help out in, um, in some way.
1: Well, hey, Kevin, you, you, you also teach a little bit. Um talk about that for a second just
2: so this year this semester actually we started the first ever venture focused class at smu law and we are on class 11 tonight out of 14 last week we were on spring break so this will be the first virtual class but this has been a lot of fun this has been something that's been in the works for some time over at smu and we finally thought the time was right I mean, the reality of it is dallas is turning into a true venture city i'd I'd call dallas a second tier venture market right now behind the the major markets that everyone's probably familiar with and as a result we're going to need more attorneys who are either focusing on venture or at least comfortable and familiar with venture so hopefully teaching venture law at smu can be the start of that and it's been a lot of fun so far
0: Nice. So corporate attorney, teacher, and then you also are part of a couple funds yourself?
2: Yeah. So eight years ago, well... Eight years ago, me and a guy named Sammy Abdullah started the Dallas Angel Network, and that's a a network here in Dallas that's just really a loose affiliation of angel investors. And then six years ago, we started Blossom Street Ventures. And Blossom Street Ventures is a early stage venture fund focused on Series A, mostly SaaS B2B companies, but we've looked at a couple of other things. We've done a couple other deals. Um, we're six years into that. So far, we've raised about $19 million. I think we have 21 portfolio companies right now. We're about to make our last investment out. Of fund six, and then we'll turn around. We'll start raising for fund seven pretty soon thereafter, uh, depending on the economic climate. Obviously, you know, doing these small funds like we do each year—we just do a four or five million dollar fund each year—used to be untenable a long time ago because it was too difficult to. uh, The legal costs were too much, and it was too cumbersome to manage. Investors at that without having a lot of resources or dollars to be able to do so, but given the advances in technology, you actually see a lot of small kind of they're called either micro funds or nano funds these days, which might be anywhere in the one to ten million dollar range. So, yes, Stephanie, we're uh, we've got a little fund there. I've got another tiny little fund that we're doing called uh, Mockingbird Ventures, just doing real, real early stage kind of first money in investments here in in Dallas, and then we represent a number of other venture funds around around Texas and a few around the country
0: nice okay so before we start asking you some questions about your types of clients and things you're helping with and stuff uh since we are like we said we're recording this virtually because of um, the corona outbreak how and you said you're a small business owner you represent lots of small businesses what have you seen or how has this started has it impacted your business at all are you able to do everything remotely without much impact
2: our firm was pretty well set up to do this. I mean, we're we're a boutique. We've got 28 employees, so it's we can be a little more nimble than a lot of larger law firms. In meaning, but by that I mean everyone's on a laptop. Everyone's laptop plugs into a docking station. Most of our paralegals and a few of our uh, Attorneys who have young kids already have a mirror of their workplace setup at home, meaning they have the exact same docking station and two monitors set up at home. So it's just as easy as plugging in their laptop. So from that perspective, it's pretty easy. We're all cloud based. Uh, you know, our document management system is cloud based, and they have enterprise level uh, cloud based management systems for attorneys now. So. We can really, truly work from anywhere. Moreover, we've kind of built the firm on that premise. I think, Stephanie, you're aware of this, but we really encourage travel. Our attorneys have, in the past couple of years, well, not even just our attorneys, our employees have worked remotely. We will pay for them to work up to a month at a time from some remote spot. They've been in Zagreb, Croatia. A couple have been to Lisbon, Portugal. Um, one was in Lima, Peru. A couple who worked from Colorado. Uh, another one from um, France. So this was not a huge shift for us. It's it's definitely different, not everyone being in the same place. But as we were talking about before we got started, Stephanie, I think this is going to result in a pretty seismic shift, not in just the way that we do business, but in the way that a lot of small businesses do business. So from a work perspective, Operational standpoint, we've been, I think we're okay. From a productivity standpoint or demand for our services, it does feel like there's been a little bit of a dip. Um, March, the first two weeks of March were very, very busy for us, probably the busiest two weeks we've ever had. It does feel like it slowed down a little bit. And then Our invoices go out on the first of the month. And so I'll know a lot more about how this is going to affect us about 10 days after that. When we're looking at our cash flow cycle, there's definitely been one or two deals that have been pulled from the table. I've had one or two clients reach out and say, hey, just want to let you know I'm not going to be able to pay you anytime soon. And and we understand that and we'll work with them. So I think this is going to affect us. I'm hoping it's not going to affect us too much.
0: Yeah, good. That's good. That's good insight. And then, so you were talking about, you know, the client that potentially couldn't pay you. So you talked that you work with all different types of clients from a percentage standpoint, are are more of your clients like just starting up and coming to you with, you know, just their business idea and just getting going are more of them a little bit further along where they've already raised some capital or already backed by um, some type of firm?
2: We kind of run the spectrum, but at this point in time, most of our clients are probably incorporated and it's not uncommon for us to be attorney number two for a lot of our clients. A lot of times they'll have someone who's already in their network, maybe it's a relative or just a referral who will do the basic organization formation for them. Once the client or the company understands that it needs to be set up a certain way to go seek venture financing or they want certain documents and background, corporate history in place, which will facilitate venture financing, then a lot of times they'll land at our door. You know, Stephanie, one thing that we do is we can kind of control the size of the clients coming into us by the retainer requests. So for a long time, as we got busier and demands for our services got higher, we increased our initial retainer request. And that may have turned away some good clients, but a a lot of smaller clients who might not have been appropriate for a firm like ours, who didn't want to pay that retainer went, went elsewhere. Now that the economy is shifting, we might... Lower that retainer request and then go do more basic entity formations or just kind of one off transactions. Typically, if a client calls and says, Hey, can you just review this one contract for us? It's only going to cost, you know, it's $750 worth of legal. We'll just pass on that. Right. If the economic climate shifts and there's, you know, less demand for our services because my supply is going to relatively stay the same, right? We're not going to let anyone go. Then we might have to turn that back on and take those smaller deals. I would say, uh, Probably twenty to forty percent of our clients are pre-revenue, and then the other, you know, sixty, maybe sixty seventy percent of them are post-revenue. And of that sixty seventy percent, probably ten percent or ten to fifteen percent are doing more than maybe twenty percent doing more than a million year in revenue. So we, we we have a number, you know, of that, and then a handful, maybe one to three percent, are doing more than ten million a year in revenue. Okay, so so we, a, we don't have a ton a of exposure. Pre-revenue yeah but quite a few pre-revenue but the other thing is stephanie it's not as if those pre-revenue companies have a ton of cash to begin with right right so we're pretty used to working on deferred payment plans and kind of doing the work incrementally enough to make sure we're working within a budget before we just turn on the faucet and just load them up with legal work
1: yeah hey can i can i jump in and follow up on one thing so so kevin um what in terms of advice uh, for for small business owners or, or people who are doing starting these things up? When do you think, um, if you are just advising them on the right time to engage you, the right stage of life for them to engage you—is there a cash threshold? Is there a maturity threshold of what they're doing? Just when would be the right time for them to engage you?
2: Um, when you're ready to incorporate, we could do a lot more good by helping you through the incorporation process than having to clean it up. You know, to, uh, just to give you guys an idea, if you say come to me, say we're going to be venture, we want to be a venture-backed company, we want to do the standard Delaware incorporation. We've got three founders, we need all the paperwork in place. That's about thirty-five hundred dollars. And if you come and we do that, we can get you. There's seven docs that go with that. You will be set for a while with from with respect to legal corporate work if you come to us and you incorporate it as an llc in texas but you really need to be a delaware c corp or you haven't taken the time to get your founders agreements in place it could easily cost more than that maybe up to double to get it cleaned up so when you're ready to incorporate now a lot of people come to us and say i have an idea i'm working with this co-founder but we're not ready to incorporate do i need to hire you now that that's not the right time That's not the right time to do it. Uh, There's a lot of good resources available on our website, on the internet, which can help early stage founders or startups. Now, let's add into that uh, picture what a small business. Let's just say that you want to open a... Local, uh, you know, a a, a restaurant, which this would be a terrible time to open a restaurant, but in three months. (laughs) So you want to open a restaurant and you come to us. Okay, what is the right time to do it? Really, before you start taking in any cash, before you sign a lease, before you hire anyone. You probably want to come and talk to us for the same reason as a startup is you could end up doing things in a manner if you're working off your own, if you're just working off of forums off of LegalZoom, where it's going to cost you more to fix the problem than it would have had you come to us initially.
0: So there was one thing you said in there that scared me a little bit. And you said that the person that's working kind of with a co-founder, they're not ready to incorporate or do anything, but they're trying to figure out what to do. Isn't there a lot of risk in that if you don't have agreements signed? Like, let's say Justin and I started working on something. We didn't have any agreements signed. um, And then one of them breaks off and goes and builds a trillion dollar company. There was nothing in place. Should people do things without, I guess, written agreements and contracts?
2: Yeah, well, let's separate that. The answer is no, they absolutely should not. Whether you need to come to me to do that is a different conversation. There's a lot of tremendous resources available online, founders agreements just like that. And I actually have several blogs. We tell people this all the time. Here's what you do. You go to your co-founder, you say, you write down on a piece of paper, here's what we agree to do. I'm going to do this, you're going to do that. I'm going to contribute all the intellectual property into it. You're going to do the same. And then here's our responsibilities. And we agree to invest over time. So what I'm saying is, Stephanie, a, a a good founders agreement, you know, you could get 90% of the way there using uh, resources available online wow. versus coming to us where you're looking at probably a minimum of 750 to 1,500 bucks to it. get that to get that done. However, I want to be very clear because you raise a good point. Founders IP in the la- and the and investing is probably the biggest problem i see let me give you a an example i got a call from a founder two years ago this founder was going through a dispute with the founder's co-founder and this was in a in another state you know someone that no one here would ever know <laughs> they just couldn't get along anymore and the company was doing reasonably well it was doing uh, you know a couple million dollars like three or four million dollars a year in revenue it had a number of you know, very sophisticated institutional investors, all early stage investments. They'd raised about $2 million in capital, but really good stuff. The founders had never signed any sort of vesting schedule, any sort of vesting agreement. So the departing founder called us. We ended up advising the departing founder. The departing founder had been there for less than two years and left with over a million dollars in cash in a buyout for an early stage company because. All of this founder's equity was 100% vested. Can you imagine how frustrated you'd be if you were an investor or the other founder, and you're at 4 million a year in revenue, which is zero in EBITDA, you're burning cash for sure, and you just had to pay a million dollars in cash because two people couldn't get along, and you didn't vest the equity to start with. So that's the number one problem we see.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. Um, okay, so you, even though you're running the small business and you're the leader of the company and so forth, you still do the le- legal work yourself, and you've been doing it for a long time. So, what is the most fun for you? Is it is it contracts? Is it is it incorporating and setting up the company? Is it capital raises? Is it you know? So, wh- contracts
2: wh- is the worst, is the <laughs> least fun. The I, I'm going to answer with two things. One, I love that I get to know a lot about a lot of different industries, right? I know quite a bit about the lending industry. I don't know... About auto lending, I don't know a lot compared relative to you guys. But if someone wants to bring it up at a cocktail party, I feel like I know a lot about it. I know a lot about manufacturing. I know a lot about you know real estate or leasing, and and so you get to dive into a lot of different. I know a lot about SaaS based businesses because a lot of our clients are are SaaS based, you know, apps or or software. So that's a lot of fun. You get to really dive into a lot of industries and know a lot. Now there's a lot that I don't know about because we don't do anything in Energy. We don't do anything in um, healthcare tech. We don't do anything in real heavy, like R&D type tech. But I love being able to dive into different industries. So that part's really fun. The, the best part about it is the relationship you develop with the company and then with the founders. Because we are small, we're starting with a lot of startups, the companies look at us as an extension of their executive team, and they end up calling you a lot or asking you a lot of more strategic questions, a lot of our legal st- strategy, but just kind of general business strategic questions. And it's really fun to be involved in those conversations. And then to have that relationship with the founders moving on, I would say the number one motivation that we hear for other attorneys, we, we get a lot of calls from senior attorneys who either are thinking about leaving their firm and they want to come and join us, or they want to go out on their own. These are all guys that, you know, guys and um, females and males at big law firms, and they want to go practice law at a smaller firm and the number one reason they say you would think, you know, being a partner at a large firm and coming work for a boutique, there's going to be a difference in salary for sure. And then there's going to be, but you take me, um, getting a much better work-life balance and you, and you think that that's generally what they're coming for it's not the number one thing is they want the client relationships. because at a big firm a lot of times they're just, they're just a cog in a wheel and they represent a fortune 500 company and they might have some interaction with that company's general counsel or some with the leadership team but they're just transactional in nature and you come to somewhere like us and you really build these deep lasting relationships with your clients and they're looking for that and and i I definitely get that, and that's my favorite part of it.
0: Okay, so not the actual legal work, but being able to bond with people. Well,
2: company. okay. But the, if we're, but, but, well, let me uh-huh. let me add one more thing. <laughs> I, I, I love setting up a venture deal, <laughs> a, a complicated, sophisticated venture deal. That's a lot of fun. I'm working on one deal right now. This company's raised about $20 million already. Um, they're currently talking to potentially an exit, which would be in the eight to nine figure range. It's a massive, massive company. And But we have all these bridge financings that have happened over the last two years. They just kept doing bridge financing after bridge financing after bridge financing. And so... Doing the conversions of those bridge financings based on different scenarios is super complex, mm-hmm. and you have to really dig into the documents. and Okay, what does the safe agreement say? How what are the conversion mechanics for a safe agreement? What are the conversion mechanics for the convertible notes? How does this affect the the Series C uh, term sheet that we have? And you know how are they calculating that? That part of it's a lot of fun. So kind of laying that out on paper and then working through an Excel model to build that out, I get a big kick out of that. Mostly because I don't know how, you know, the company definitely looks at us as if we have to be able to do it because the company doesn't necessarily understand it. So it's really just us and then the venture attorney on the other side confirming the numbers, which can kind of be scary. You know, there's times, Stephanie, we're going through things with Defy when the investment bankers are calling me and saying, hey, do you think this Excel model is right? And I was thinking, isn't that your job? Aren't aren't you guys the ones who are supposed to do that? So, yeah, so there's parts of the venture stuff that are really, really fun.
1: (laughs) Okay. So what is, um, what, that makes me think, what is the most common kind of deal structure that you're seeing?
2: Dallas, it's shifting. Mm-hmm. It, it used to be convertible notes. Just because there's, First of all, you have to realize Dallas is mostly early stage financing, mm-hmm. right? A lot of the companies here, by the time we get to late stage financing, the companies maybe have either moved or if we are doing late stage financing here in Dallas, the documents and the investors are coming from outside of Dallas. But a lot of the deals we've done Um, Our early-stage financing, and those for a long time were convertible notes. We're seeing more and more safe agreements, however, they're still not as widely accepted here in Texas as they are, let's say, in California or on the East Coast. So convertible notes are the most common just overall early stage investment structure. Safe agreements are, are good too. For, on the equity financing piece, when you're actually doing equity, what you see most often is something based on the NVCA model docs. So NVCA stands for National Venture Capital Association. And they it's just a nonprofit that's got some money from Washington, some private donations. And that organization has promulgated for years model legal do- legal documents and it's basically a series A set of documents, but you can modify them to be series C series B or series C and that's primarily the format that everyone uses once you're doing a private an equity round and it's just good the documents are, are not simple by any manner but um, or excuse me by any means however. Most venture attorneys know them pretty well. So Mm -hmm. it really cuts down on the time it takes to do a venture deal. Because if you're all starting with the same template, then everyone can just work off of that template rather than trying to understand some other structure.
1: Got it. And I think with, um, because I I did the Dan. That's
2: correct. With the Mockingbird Fund, which is really early stage stuff, right? We're just doing $50,000 first money in or real early Mm -hmm. money type in type stuff. We're doing a safe agreement. Here's something that companies don't understand. And a lot of early stage investors need to understand this. No startup is ever going to exit after its first round or its second or its third. I mean, if we look at the five, I think the five went through four or five rounds of of financing, three of those institutional rounds. So no one's ever going to exit. You have To set up the early stage financings to make them easy for future rounds and you get a lot of early stage investors who might be uh, very you know, intelligent and successful and they obviously have money to do early stage but they're not venture investment investors so they come in with all these private equity terms at a hundred thousand dollar deal that really frustrate or disrupt a future financing so my early stage financing is we want to make them as easy as possible mm-hmm. for future rounds to stack on top of them
1: yep and, and is any one of these set up better for that if i'm company side safer
2: they're absolutely the easiest however if you're investor side there's a few more protections that go into a convertible note and some people like that and then on top of that if you are uh If you really want to have some sort of management or control or not really control, but veto rights and insight into the operations of the business, you probably need equity. So every consideration is different. Now, Justin, if you called me and you said, look, I'm just putting in 25 grand here. They've got a $500,000 raise already going. It's a safe agreement. I'm going to say, just take it. We don't want to go disrupt the round. But if you said, me and some people are putting in a material amount, we're really the only investors in this round, I've got a group together, we're putting in 150 grand and we're really going to work side by side with the founders here to help them build this thing, then a safe agreement, which is kind of an arm's length deal, it probably wouldn't be right for that particular transaction. We probably want something with a little bit more you know, control or a little bit more um, weight to it.
0: Nice. Okay. So, um, well, I was going to ask one other question, but before I do kind of trying to to wrap up for anybody who's listening, because I think we have some people who listen, who are interested in, in starting a business, have ideas and so forth. So kind of grouping it together, you would say always document everything, even if you're not going to incorporate or do anything right away, pull up legal zoom. Get agreements in place.
2: Do search for founders agreements. I think you'll find a Y Comanair, I think has some um, 500 startups might have some. There's great founders agreements. Those contracts are enforceable. It's just one person to another person. Start with that for sure.
0: Yep. And then let's say they make it further, they're ready to incorporate. Um, then they come to you about $3,500, you said, to get all that done and done right the first time. Now they're going to go and they've got an idea, they've worked on it a little bit, they've incorporated, they're going to raise capital. Now they've got a set evaluation. Do you, I, we're going to have, um, um, a guy from Austin on in a few weeks, who's going to give us like a little model for setting evaluation and so forth. But do you help your customers figure that out, how to set a valuation and how to set a vesting schedule and all of that?
2: Yeah. What we try and do, what I try and do is, is speak anecdotally about what we've seen in the market. You know, I'm in the process of auditing all of our capital raises over the last five years that were more than 250,000 and less than 4 million. We've got nearly 200 of them. That that my firm's conducted uh, mostly company side, some investor side, so we've got some great data points inside in Texas and outside of Texas on what those valuations should be, mm-hmm. as well as I'm constantly monitoring. You know, I, I get um, newsletters from other information sources or VCs and we talk to the VCs we represent or who are in our network and ask them what, what evaluation is looking like right now so we can give them a good idea. So that's, that's the first part is what is the market willing to accept? Then how do you build up to evaluation? It's very difficult to do so for an early stage company, right? You have an idea, you think the idea is a billion dollar idea. No investor is going to think it's worth a billion dollars, right? So you, you have these, uh um, opposite motivations there where the investor wants the valuation to be as low as possible so that the investor can get more equity or get more of the company. The founder wants the valuation to be as high as possible so that the founder can retain as much equity as possible or not give up that much equity. So how do you deal with those two conflicting desires? What we found is that most early stage valuations fall into a similar range. right? If you you just have an idea, you could probably argue that it's worth a couple hundred thousand dollars, which is ridiculous in real life, but this is just how venture works. Mm -hmm. If you've gone through an accelerator, typically once you get out of an accelerator, it's in the one to two million dollar range. If you have an MVP out, maybe a little bit of revenue, early stage, maybe it's three to five million, and then there's a bunch of factors that change these things, meaning has the found, have the founders already been successful before? Any founder with a successful exit, you can probably um, increase those numbers by a two or a three X. What's the market potential, right? And if you had an idea right now that was AI software that would help to identify you know, remote strains of uh, viruses, mm-hmm. that would obviously be very, very valuable right now. Um, AI was really hot for a while. Machine learning was really hot mm-hmm. for a while. Blockchain four years ago was really, really hot. So there's some function there but then ultimately it's how much equity are you willing to give up and a lot of times guys you just back into the valuation based on the equity that you want to give up which is based on what's appropriate for that round i can tell you you know anyone with a startup out there you want to try to give up 15% per round and then no more than 25% so if you're doing an early stage round and you're somewhere between 15 and 25% and you want to raise $400,000 Then your post-money valuation, meaning after you've raised the money, an appropriate valuation might be $2 million, because 400,000 over 2 million is one-fifth or 20%. So that means your pre-money valuation, which is, this is what I'm saying the company's worth today, is 1.6 million. Then I'm gonna go get $400,000 in cash from my investors, add that to my 1.6 million because I now have 400,000 in my bank account. So now I'm worth $2 million and the investor owns 400,000 out of 2 million or 20%. So a lot of valuations are built in that way. Now what will happen is a client will come to me, a new client say, well, I want to raise a million dollars, but I only want to give up 20% of the company. And I'll tell the client, I think you're going to have a hard time doing that for these reasons, because you'd have to have a $4 million pre-money valuation to get to 5 million post. So how much do you really need right now? You know, how much do you really need for nine to 12 months? And then hopefully we can get that down to 350, 400,000. A lot of times clients will come to you and say, if I raise $2 million right now, I'll never have to raise again. <laughs> I'll say that's fine, but you're never gonna get a valuation that you're happy with at two, if you wanna raise 2 million. You really want to raise enough for, for early stage, kind of first money in round, you wanna ra- real early stage, you probably wanna raise enough to get you through nine to 12 months. Four. oh, go ahead, Sorry. Okay, now I, I was just going to kind of go on that timeline. Yep. So, right, yeah. n- nine to twelve months. The seed stage, maybe twelve to eighteen months. A A round, eighteen to twenty-four months. B twenty-four to thirty-six months. And so, if you look at it that way, and you take all those things, all those factors, that I think you can get to evaluation. That'll make sense for both sides.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. I always, Justin knows this always in my job description. I just had it as chief money beggar because it felt like you're always from yeah. capital. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you said something about accelerator. So for those that are listening, that yeah. don't know what that is. You said from idea to accelerator to MVP, what's accelerator.
2: So accelerators are programs that help you accelerate your idea. And they used to do this by having a formal program. It might've been two to four months and you would go in three or four days, three or four out of five days a week you'd sit through some classes, they'd help you to iterate your idea, they'd make introductions, they'd have an attorney come and speak or an accountant or an insurance person. They really just accelerate your business. The most well-known accelerators in the country are Y Combinator, which is ro- widely regarded as the best in the world. Techstars, which I think is a good accelerator, though it's being watered down a little bit because it's um, it's basically a franchise model, so there's one everywhere. I, I don't want to speak poorly of it, it's just not quite, in my mind, Y Combinator. And then five hundred startups, which has been good in the past and I th- still think continues to be a cut above most. And But th- now you have mm. dozens of them in every state, maybe even multiple ones in every startup community. So accelerators are really easy to find these days. A lot of them even before this COVID-19 yeah. catastrophe, a lot of them had already moved to virtual or online because it was just too expensive to have to fly to an accelerator, fly to a class once a week or a couple times during the course of the program. So accelerators can be really, really helpful in updating you, informing you, making introductions, just kind of getting your business plan on rails to help get you to the next step. Most accelerators end in a pitch day. And then at that pitch day, hopefully you are being introduced to investors, networking with investors, networking with investors and getting feedback on your pitch and your valuation.
0: And if you want to be part of an accelerator program, there's typically, it's just typically a flat fee.
2: It's usually an application process. Uh, There might be a fee involved, but usually the accelerator actually pays you or generally the accelerator will invest into your business through a combination of cash Mm -hmm. and equity and then take a certain percentage back. I'll go ahead and put this out there. If they're asking for more than 6%, it's too much. A lot of times accelerators will say, we're going to give you $25,000 in cash and $400,000 in services value which is just complete BS. It's just not worth that much. Capital Factory is kind of an accelerator, kind of an incubator here in Texas. They've done a great job. They're big in Austin. They're big in Dallas. They moved into Houston. Um, I'm a big fan of theirs. They take 1%, 1% and sometimes less if, for whatever reason, the company is significantly more mature than, than most of their applicants. And then that gives you access to their resources, their team. Uh, they will invest a little bit. They do have more investment dollars if if they so choose. So I really like Capital Factory's model, but I, I have spent a lot of time over the last three or four years arguing with accelerators about how obnoxious their terms have been. And um, from time to time, we can get them to agree from time to time. I'll make the recommendation to the client that the client doesn't pursue it. And then sometimes... You know, the client just goes ahead and does it and sometimes they have success, sometimes they don't. But I don't want to say just because you get accepted to accelerate that you need to do it. I would make sure you're working with your attorney and your advisors to see if if it's a good fit for you. However, if you get no Y Combinator or, or really tech stars or 500 startups, you probably definitely should do it.
0: And how do you think, so we, we talked about how right. um, the, the Corona stuff is gonna potentially impact work from home and commercial real estate space and all that kind of stuff. How do you think it's gonna impact valuations?
2: So we're already seeing um, a, a, a decent effect first of all we're seeing some deals get pulled and I'm, I'm definitely hearing that not all of them I mean a lot of a lot of VCs out there they still have money and they're just looking to be more opportunistic right. um, I can tell you the, the multiple that people follow most closely is B2B SaaS and that's been hovering around six to eight for years if you look at publicly traded comps that's really what the multiple is when I say multiple that means the enterprise value as a function of um, revenue annual revenue so this is true in the venture world if you're doing a, a million dollars a year then you might have a 6 million dollar value 6 to 8 million dollar value if you're doing 2 million dollars a year you might be have a 12 to 16 million dollar pre money valuation we had seen multiples get up to 10 to 11 really in the last 6 months there's just been a run on these things, even with the the kind of WeWork fallout, it hasn't really shied people away from real early stage valuations, it hadn't. Mm-hmm. Now, with the coronavirus, I've heard from multiple places that that number's being reset back to five. Damn. So we're hearing B2B SaaS multiples at 5X of ARR. Also, when you talk about ARR, which is annual run rate, and that's usually for your, um, for your revenues, The ARR is typically calculated on a trailing twelve months period. However, for a a a startup in hyper growth mode, twelve months ago could have been zero, and today could be hundred thousand dollars a month, right? So sometimes there's an argument there to say, well, let's take our last three months and multiply that by four, and that's our ARR. And that goes more into the conversation, Stephanie. You guys were asking about earlier about building a valuation and. Those are things that you know. I think a good venture attorney will help your client, help the client understand, here's the argument we're gonna have when we go out to talk to VCs about how we're building our valuation. But to directly answer your question, so I don't know if I'm ready to say that valuations are being dropped in half, because I think that 10 was a little high, but I think a 20 to 30% dip in valuations is probably about right. Yeah, that makes sense. And then uh, I Stephanie, let me qualify that by yeah. saying, this bailout that's coming down the, the line right now could affect that, right? Because the bailout looks to be pretty significant yeah. and very helpful. And there's tax credits. I mean, it, part of it becomes a grant. If I'm reading this correctly, that yeah. payroll, essential costs, uh, rent all becomes a grant. So yep. this is changing on a daily basis. And I don't know if we've hit the bottom of this thing yet. I would think not. But if this bailout comes in, and it really does provide enough stimulus for two to three months, then maybe we have.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 It'll be interesting to see for sure. So yep. So then if I go back, okay, they've got their forms online, they set up their company, they decide to raise capital and they um set a valuation. Then I guess my last question there, and then I've been asking a lot, so I'll let Justin and John ask if they have any, but you've seen a lot of companies you've seen a lot of startups which are very risky we've done another podcast on just how risky startups are and how many fail and so forth and how many succeed so you see lots of startups you see lots of early stage companies of the ones you see what what's what's the it, you know you're in lots of different industries what's the it factor that you look at is there anything consistent about the ones who make it
2: yeah i think there's two the one is just sheer determination and hard work that outlasts everything. It outlasts money. It outlasts pedigree. It outlasts who's on your team. And then two is resourcefulness. So I I think you can determine a lot from early stage companies based on things like how diligent have they been in setting up the company, right? If a founder took the time to listen to this podcast and then went and found some good founders forms on Y Y Combinator's website and Mm -hmm. drafted this with with her co-founder and then came to us three months later and said, we're not quite ready for you, but here's what I'm thinking, what do you think? And then came to us six months after that and said, we're ready, let's go ahead and do this. All of those things, that shows me how this founder is going to be throughout her entire business, right? And and she's resourceful and she's planning and she's thorough. So I think you can see those signals early on. Let, let me tell you another signal that I think has been very determinative um, or, or let's say you know, correlative investor or company updates every single client i represent i tell them you should be updating your investors Mm -hmm. at least monthly if not weekly early on if not weekly and then i tell them this isn't about getting the information out to your investors that's secondary it's about you sitting down and understanding what did we accomplish this week or this month what was good what was bad what are our needs what are our asks and get that in an email and send that out to everyone and the ones who do it without fail are significantly more successful than the ones who do not. Like if, if there's someone who, who does not do it, if I go look at their corporate history, it's not gonna be clean. They didn't get signatures on everything, right? So that kind of level of just do what you need to do, hard work and resourcefulness in my mind, you know, it, it, that's those are the most important um, attributes for early stage founders.
0: Awesome, yeah, I would not have guessed those two. So that's good, good, um, good information. John, Justin, do you have any questions for Kevin? I know we're hitting kind of about the mark, but we have a little more time.
1: Um, I think I answer all the ones that I had relative to kind of what you do day to day. My only other questions would just be any kind of backstory where you grew up. Sure, yeah. Have, I'll give you a
2: little bit. You know, of. Give of, of give a I of always wanted to be out, an attorney. I, I didn't necessarily always want to be a venture attorney. That kind of came late in my later in my life. Uh, But very early on, once I started practicing law, uh, I I fell in love with startups. And now I I would consider myself doing more venture work than anything else for nearly 10 years now. So I'm I'm really happy with where I landed. But I I grew up in the area, grew up in in Arlington, uh, went to high school in Fort Worth, UT for undergrad, Lived in Dallas for a little while, back at UT for law school and back here. So, most of my life, I've lived in a few other cities uh, for brief periods of time, but most of my life has been here. And I'm really, really excited to be a part of the North Texas startup community. I think we are still pretty nascent. If you compare us to Austin or San Francisco or Boston or New York, I think from a resources standpoint, Dallas has everything we need to be to be a top tier venture market. We have a ton of money. We have a ton of Fortune 500 companies and that yep. feeds uh, that feeds dollars into investors' pockets that feeds needs for innovation, that feeds corporate venture capital. We have two universities which are just fantastic. UTD is phenomenal with everything they're doing on the venture side. SMU I still think is an untapped gold mine. For what we could do on the venture side, and they're both, you know, very, very close to downtown. So I'm really optimistic about what the next five to ten years look like from a venture perspective. We're really just scratching the surface mm-hmm. here. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. And I'm, I'm excited to be part of of that, right, with the Dan Network, and then just being in the Mockingbird Fund. So it's, you know, getting back. You know, out of Defy and kind of doing our own thing now has been part of it was motivated just by wanting to get back into the startup world anyway and just kind of be a part of the community so it's definitely exciting to be part of that and I definitely agree that there's a lot of money here and a lot of opportunity um, so it's good that you have you know, the fund that you have and then just other people that are surrounding.
2: Well, Justin, you guys, you know, I this mean, community you're perfect to, you know, community a perfect example of the community feeding itself, right? We, we, we all helped to build Defy and Defy had, you know, great success. And then it's allowed yeah. you guys to go out to try and build another company. You're hiring people to do that. You're putting money to work mm-hmm. back in the economy. And then you're investing here locally, which is what we will mm-hmm. see more of. Because right now, a lot of time, these successes, yeah. they're held outside yep. the city, yep. right? Let's just say that. You know, um, one of my clients has a big exit, but the investors were in Boston or New York or San Francisco or whatnot, all that money's going to those cities. It's not coming here. So we need more successes here, the founders and the investors so we can redeploy that capital here and we'll get there. Yeah.
0: And and plug for TCU. They're in Fort Worth, not Dallas, but they do have an entrepreneurship program now and all kinds of cool stuff going on.
2: You're right. And I do need to say that I'm a big fan (laughs) of Tarrant County. They've actually reached out here recently. So we're working on seeing if we can't help to integrate some of our resources over there and to help train up some of their MBAs and, um, and business students and then also i think fort worth is going to be an untapped community because fort worth does have a lot of, of high net worth like dallas does i think it's a little bit behind dallas in terms of the opportunities or in terms of the startups but there's no reason why it can't do what dallas is doing and it'll catch up much more quickly because we'll be able to learn from all the mistakes dallas has made
0: yep awesome and john what about you do you have any um parting questions for kevin
1: <laughs> um yeah well so A, I, I think this is great and you could probably all my questions were kind of off topic and I think we just stayed <laughs> on topic so well throughout the podcast that I'm I'm hesitant to work one in, but I'm gonna work it in and then we'll just cut it off where it logically should be cut off if this just doesn't fit at all. But I'm curious about it. So um uh so Kevin, I think <laughs> kind of the the economic climate right now we've gotten a taste of this this blip this shock to the system and um and i know you you talked about some of the effects of of what you're seeing but but really you've only gotten a a month-long taste of it not even a month-long taste of it and um and so and so now we've got a a stimulus package where the government's going to kind of try to put the brakes on this and and stave off the shock but but if you, does, does even this couple of weeks give you a taste of um, what a recession may look like for uh, for for the VC um, kind of environment, what it may look like for small businesses? Um, just if, if you have more pervasive, just a, a full-on recession for a little while, a year, two, three, something we just haven't tasted a lot in the past 20 years, Um do you get a do you get kind of a picture of what that looks like and how things need to be built to be resilient either computers at home or or like more economic cash based stuff what does, does this spur any kind of thinking around around that or is it
2: just full steam ahead yeah um, let me give you two thoughts so internally we're definitely having a number of catastrophe contingency conversations right what happens if all of our clients stop paying us What happens if there's no demand for our services how do we make payroll where does the money come from and and we're looking at our 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 cash balances our line of credit these government loans we're thinking okay how how do we handle this so i think it's good from that standpoint to have those conversations externally you know how does this affect the, the small business the startup market well the certain number of industries that are very, very exposed, uh, re- restaurants, retail, hospitality, I mean, this is going to end up killing a number of companies that probably didn't deserve to be killed. There's also this consideration of if they stop paying rent and they lay off their employees, then really what happens? I mean, are they really dying or like a restaurant that, you know, 80%, 90% of its overhead is in rent and in um, employee costs because the restaurant can can stop all the other raw good purchases. Does this really kill them? Or they just put on pause for a little while. So that part's very interesting. We represent a couple of restaurants, we're having those conversations with them and we're talking to their landlords about whether we need to pay rent or can we get some sort of a a, a hold on that. And then as far as just kind of the overall effect on the economy, I really only wanna speak with what I know, which is just small businesses and startups. I think it's too early, John, to tell because so far, there's definitely been a dip in demand, and like I said earlier on, we've had some conversation with clients that have said, "I can't do this right now," but there's still a lot of activity. I'm hearing from a lot of investors that are moving forward with things. I think everyone right now is operating under the notion that this is a max of you know, worst case scenario, six to nine month deal, and likely a three to six month issue. And so everyone's operating under that. And I think everyone can see what what it looks like on the other side. If that turns out not to be the case, then yeah, there's going to have to be a lot of changes that are made. Now, some costs will go down and there'll be some other losers in this industry. For instance, we were in the process of expanding our, our office and taking on more office space. I don't know that we'll do that. And I definitely won't be paying for higher quality office space because this has taught me that we can work from home. We can do it successfully and people like doing it. So there will be some costs that are saved there. And once we get people out of office spaces, we save on costs because we don't provide as much food. We don't provide as much desks. We don't provide as much amenities, things like that. So there will be some cost containment for us that could easily offset any dip in revenues, right? And so I I just don't know. But I'll tell you, John, we're being very thoughtful about that internally. And then I'm having a number of very similar conversations with my small business clients. And then the last thing I'll I'll end with is I've been invited to participate in a couple of different – conference calls with small business owners or attorneys owners of law firms to just talk about how is this affecting your business and i've got one scheduled for later today one for tomorrow i'm very excited to see what i can learn from there because i think i'll have a much better understanding yeah. of what the climate looks like once i get on a call with 30 other small business owners no, that's
0: great. Well, it would be interesting to have this conversation again in a month and then a month after that, but we won't make you keep getting on the podcast. Um, the
2: I'd be happy to do it. Well, this has been a lot of fun. You know, I'm big fans of your guys. I've got a lot of admiration for what you guys have already built <laughs> and what you're building now. So, very happy to participate. Uh, I think I do need to say my marketing person is going to kill me if I don't say the website, the law firm is Vela Wood, Velawood, V E L A W O O D law.com again. That's Law dot com and i'm kevin you can contact me through the website the email address is up there happy to talk to anyone who has any questions or wants to discuss anything we talked about today
0: excellent awesome all right thank you kevin yeah
2: thanks, thanks so much. guys I'll have a it great day great to too, so it's you. out there you.